So I drove an automobile for 35 years without getting a traffic ticket. Can you believe that? That's a pretty good record. 35 years I drove without ever getting a ticket, a moving violation. But I got it this last summer. <laughs> I was out of state. I was out of state. I was driving late at night. It was 1.45 in the morning because we were horribly delayed in our trip. And I was on an empty road in a rural area. And I really wasn't using that as an excuse to drive fast. So I was only driving 55. I thought that was the speed limit. It looked like a 55 road. I didn't know any better. My wife is nodding. She's vouching for me. This is all true. I didn't know any better. I, it seemed like an Oregon highway to me. You know, I wasn't in Oregon, but it seemed just like an Oregon highway. So I'm cruising along. And there's nobody else on that road except the police officer. Uh, he happens to notice me, and he pulled, over, pulled me over right away. And you know, we knew from the minute he got out of his car, that ticket was already being written. You know, there was no discussion, no talking about where we were from, or we were strangers, or we didn't know. That ticket was being written at that point. And uh, so we got a ticket, nothing, nothing uh, to do about it. I probably deserved a few in the past, so you know, maybe that makes up for it a little bit. <laughs> so you see Accelerate on the screen. That's been our theme here this fall as we start a new ministry year. We know our ministries accelerate up to high speed. We said, you know what? We want to accelerate into a brand new ministry year, but also a brand new personal year with God, our spiritual life. We want to ramp it up. We want to keep growing with God. We want to grow in our relationship with Him. We want to, uh, to grow to new levels of spiritual maturity. We want to reach new levels of ministry for Him, where as we're rising up, we're becoming more usable to God. Uh, we're seeing Him use us in great ways. We're excited about doing that. But you know, anytime you accelerate, just like with driving a car, you're going to run into some challenges, maybe some obstacles, maybe some setbacks. I want to address one of those in particular uh, today as we, uh, 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 as we wrap up our Accelerate series. This is a, a, a particularly important one that we deal with. But let's just remember what we've learned so far. We've said, you know, from Scripture we've learned this, that, that continuing to accelerate in our relationship with God means this. First of all, we've got to have commitment to Christ. That's first gear, so to speak. If you don't have that personal relationship with Him, and a real commitment to Him as a person, not to Christianity or religion or whatever, but to the person of Jesus Christ, you can't go forward. Second gear, we said, was devotion to Christ's church. Because the church is people. It's God's people. And God works through his family to help us grow up, just like we grow up in our home families. The church is also God's ministry. So if we're going to be connected to what he's doing in ministry, the church is his primary place where he does it. We need to be devoted then to that ministry. Third gear we said was this, diligence as a disciple. The road of a disciple is not an easy one. It's a much harder road than not being a disciple. And along the way, you have to be diligent about certain aspects of your life and your walk with God. And we learned some of those. And then fourth gear we said was dedication to serving. Dedication to serving. We have to have a servant's heart and a servant attitude so that we're thinking beyond ourselves. It's not about us. It's about being humble and serving God, but also about being humble and serving others and putting them first. Those are the four gears. But what comes after fourth gear? Well, in most of your cars, whether you know it or not, you have a fifth gear. If you have a certain kind of car, it just kicks in automatically. You never know it. The, the stick shift I drive actually has a fifth gear. It doesn't say five on it, though. It has an O for overdrive. Overdrive is just that level where, where you, you use that gear when you want to cruise at high speed. When you're done, uh, you know, uh, ramping up, but, but you want to really cruise and stay at that high speed. And the gear ratio shifts, and some of you know that much better than I do in terms of how all that works. But you're really cruising well when you get in that fifth gear and we want to talk about what's that fifth gear for us what's that overdrive 
that's going to make us really be able to accelerate well. And here it is. I'll just give it to you right up front. Here's what, what we'll be studying today. Enjoyment of grace. Enjoyment of grace. Some of you are going, what? Well, that's what we're going to learn here. Enjoyment of grace. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 is where we'll be today. That's our chapter to study from, our verses. Begin at, at uh, Luke 15, 11. I'll have the text up on the screen as always, but as always, I say, get your Bible open. Get familiar with this passage in your own Bible. It's a great passage, Luke 15. The entire chapter is really, you know, almost 100%, a little less, but almost 100% parables. Parables, three parables which Jesus spoke back to back. Did you know he ever did that? You read the, in the Bible, you see he brings up a parable every once in a while, but on this occasion, he spoke three parables back to back. A parable remembers a story with a point. It's typically one big point which we're to take to heart and apply to our lives. Jesus, we know from Scripture, used these parables often to teach important truths. In all three of these parables that, uh, that are in chapter 15, Jesus taught the same big point. Kind of tells you that was an important point, isn't it? doesn't it? As one person has noted about this, I usually don't read a quote like this, but this is worth reading about these three parables. This person said, these three parables are like three musical instruments, which although each makes a different type of sound, are nevertheless playing the same tune. The distinctive tone qualities of each parable can be discerned, but when considered together, we can hear that their melodies are identical. Each of these parables uh, tells a story of lost and found, something lost that then is found. The first parable is about a, a lost sheep and a shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. The second is about a lost coin in a house and a woman who turns her house upside down to find the lost coin. For our purposes today, we won't focus on those first two parables, but only on the last one, which is a story, the parable of the lost son. The lost son, known to some of you as the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe a very familiar story to you, but we'll focus on a, on a specific aspect of it that perhaps you haven't considered previously or maybe just haven't considered at least recently. Very worth taking in. Here's how it begins. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, the father, divided his wealth between them. What the younger son was asking for was his inheritance before his father's death. He wanted it before his dad died. By law, we know that he was entitled to one-third of his father's estate. As the youngest son, that was by law, he would at least get that much, one-third of his father's estate. And it wasn't unusual in that day for a title to the property of the parents to actually be transferred over to the children before the parents died. But typically when that happened, uh, the law also specified that, that total control of that asset would not be uh, fully given. The title would be transferred, but typically the way it worked was uh, ownership or, or at least control was retained of all the assets before the person was deceased. What this younger son asked for, we learn here in this parable, was complete control. He wanted his one-third, and he wanted to have control completely over what he did with that one-third. He wanted the ownership because he had a plan in mind, which undoubtedly he hadn't shared with his father. Here we're told that his father bought into his plan. Apparently, unsuspectingly, his father went ahead and, and divided and gave him the one-third. And this son was undoubtedly thrilled when this happened. But it was something that, that was very costly to the father to do. 
and the brothers, you know, when, by giving over these assets, it was essentially like breaking up the family business in a way. It, it was uh, taking it all out of, of being unified under one, you know, head with the family members and, and splitting a, a significant part off, dividing the assets of the family enterprise. But the father went ahead and did this, and here's what happened with the son's plan. Verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, that would be including all of, all of his assets, and, and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. His plan was to take the money and run. He wanted to get out of there. He wanted freedom. He wanted to, to live it up using his inheritance right now. And that's exactly what he did. He moved to far away. It says he lived loosely, which is a, 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 an expression that means he took up a very extravagant lifestyle, lived very wildly, and just spent money left and right. In the process, we're told he, he used up all the financial resources he had been given. That probably brought him down to earth a little bit, but he's young, he's full of himself, and he's, uh, he's ready to go. He doesn't think, well, well, we'll figure out a way to get by. This is all good. I have rich friends. I got a lot of people hanging around with me. But you know what? He ended up losing it all. Did he count on his partying friends to help him out? Probably. Probably some of them could. They were probably also rich as well. Although you can imagine in that kind of situation, once you run out of money, you start losing some of those dear friends. But as the story goes, soon those who might have uh, helped really couldn't help in the first place because it says, now when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. Impoverished. Whatever he was counting on coming from his friends didn't come. The economy went bad. Famine happened. There was no money for anyone to share. And so he was impoverished, the word is. That's a word that means lacking in even the basic necessities of life. He couldn't even get food and shelter for himself and clothing. Verse 15, what did he do? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he, the one who hired him, sent him into the fields to uh, feed swine. This is a pig farmer who has pigs roaming across fields. He's, he's, he's got a, a big pig herd. And the job he takes is to go feed these pigs. In verse 16, uh, 15 and 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods. These would have been carob seeds. With the pods that the uh, swine were eating and no one was giving, a, was giving anything to him. This tells us how desperate he became to take this job. It was, a, it was not a glamorous job, as you can imagine at all. It was a hard job to do. It was a miserable job. It, it was the lowest paying kind of job uh, at that time, at that place. And, and you realize that he's not only experiencing that, but from, from the perspective of one who came out of Hebrew culture, he considered this to be a very degrading job to have to take. Because as a good Hebrew, uh, keeping the, 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 the dietary laws of the Old Testament, well, pigs were considered unclean. You never would eat pig. Because you never ate pig, and you didn't want to defile yourself ceremonially, which might keep you from going to a worship service, according to those laws. Well, you just never got near them. But now he has to tend them. Now he has to feed them. And he's working for what he would consider to be, if he asked everybody back home who he was working for, and, uh, and, and they described that person, they say, well, he's working for a pagan. You know, here's, 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 a, here's a pagan. So from his perspective, you know, he's working for a pagan pig farmer. For him, it was the worst job he could possibly have, but it was the only job he could find. Certainly, he found himself in an unfriendly environment here. You notice he was starving. But the rules were that he couldn't even eat some of the pig food. 
And it says, and no one was helping him out. Nobody ever looked at him and said, wow, sorry you're down. Let me at least buy you a lunch. Nobody did that for him. As much prejudice as he had against the Gentiles there, those Gentiles probably had a lot of prejudice against him as a Jew. They looked on him as just a lowly guy who came and blew all his money, and so nobody cared. So there he was starving. Well, that eventually got him in such a bad way that he at least realized what a fool he had been. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, meaning against God, and in your sight, meaning I've sinned against you too, Father, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He knew that he had not honored his father according to God's law as he should. He knew that he had hurt his father financially, but also at a personal level as well, being deceitful with his father. He had hurt his brother, the other family members, the employees, the apparently large concern that the father owned. He understood then he had no right to, to go back and just take up where he left off. That it really, he felt he had no right to go home whatsoever and rejoin the family. That he deserved to be turned away and rejected altogether. But he knew on the other hand that his father was a good man. Perhaps he would at least give him the lowest paying job in the family business. That would be, be a, a step down uh, from where he was before. He would be the laughing stock there. The kid who went bad came home, and now look, he's got the lowest job of all. Probably the employees, some relatives, would ridicule him, abuse him a little bit. But as far as he was concerned, that's a lot better than starving where he was. So he determined that he would go and own up to his sin and take his deserved lumps. And maybe somewhere along the way, after a few years, he'd at least get a chance to start over again in life. Verse 20 says, though, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This certainly must have shocked him. That was a very good sign. And so he uh, tries to continue on with his plan. Remember, he's, he's prepared what he's going to say to his father. And the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But he doesn't get any further than that. He doesn't get a chance to even ask for the job because his father evidently cuts him off at that point. And his father begins to give orders to the servants who are around. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Far from being rejected, this son uh, finds that he's welcomed. He, he doesn't have to plea for the most meager position in the family business. In fact, he's welcomed back in an extravagant way. His dad throws a big party. He couldn't believe it. Neither could his older brother. Verse 25. Now his older brother, his, or now his older son, the father's older son, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he, the servant, said to him, you can imagine the excitement in his voice, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. 
His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In other words, Dad, you're giving a party for him when he comes home after all the bad he's done, after all the hurt he's brought upon you and your, your other family members and your employees. Are you out of your mind, Dad? He was not just incredulous, he was angry. Was he rightfully angry in any way? Actually, not really. Not really. Especially, we also look at his own attitude here. In the words he spoke, he reveals his own, his own shortcomings quite easily. He is obviously self-righteous. I never did anything wrong ever, Dad. He's, he's petty about what his father has given him or not given him. He's lived in extravagance all his life with his father. He's jealous. He's got a skewed view of reality that makes him bitter and hard-hearted. The word he uses for, Dad, I've served you all this time, is a word that means, Dad, it's like I've been a slave to you all these years. Well, what a wonderful relationship with his dad. He has lack of love and compassion. In many ways, it's been pointed out that this older brother revealed that he was pretty much a lost son, too. He just never left home. <laughs> his younger brother at least bailed out, but he stayed home, and, and he looked good. He dressed proper, and he stayed you know, in the house and kept up in the family business. But as far as where his heart really was, he was just as lost as his, as his younger brother was. But even so, with this lost son, the father was gentle. Verse 31, but he, the father, said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. When did I ever hold anything back from you, son? But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For, your, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and, and was lost and has been found. And that's where Jesus ends the story. It's an incredible ending. Like many great short stories, he leaves it kind of hanging with you wondering what happened next. This really is a great story. Charles Dickens called it the finest short story ever written. I don't do it justice when I read it to you here and when I stop and pause for comments. Sit down this afternoon, read this story in its whole, and just take it in as a great story, and you'll see how great it is. Brilliantly told by Jesus, so vivid, so picturesque. It's touching, it's timeless, it's insightful in a number of ways, and of course, very valuable for personal application, which is why Jesus told it in the first place. What's the one big point? You know, we say parables, you want, always want to look for the one big point and not get bogged down in all the other details so much. What's the, the one big point? You always want to make sure you get this. Why did Jesus tell this parable at this time along with the other two? Well, we, when we look at the context in which this was spoken, we find it was delivered at a time when Jesus was reaching out to those who Luke identifies earlier in the chapter as sinners. Sinners, and it's a very specific word that was used in that way to describe irreligious people. People who just weren't giving any attention to God whatsoever, just living for, for themselves. They weren't tuned in to God. They weren't worshiping God. They weren't walking with God. Of course, they weren't obeying God. And of course, they weren't serving God either. But Jesus was reaching out to those sinners. And we're told that when he did, many of them were actually responding positively to him. Luke begins the chapter by telling us they, they kept coming to see Jesus. 
They were listening to Jesus, learning from Jesus, beginning to believe in Him as God's Son, repenting of their sin, becoming followers of Christ. But at the same time this was going on, the context also tells us this, that there were many self-righteous and hypocritical religious leaders who were very hard-hearted and cold-hearted, and they became very critical of Jesus for reaching out to these sinners. They voiced their disapproval of that both publicly and privately. And it was at this time when Jesus has the sinners coming to listen to him and the, and the religious folks, at least some of them, complaining about it that Jesus told this story to get his big point across. And his big point was simply this. His main idea is that God has deep love and compassion for the spiritually lost. That's what Jesus was trying to get across. God has deep love and compassion for the spiritually lost. That because he has that love and compassion, he seeks after those lost ones to bring them back to him. And he welcomes them back to him. Those who come with repentant hearts like the the prodigal son did, he does not turn away. In fact, he not only does not turn away, but he greatly rejoices over lost ones who've come back and been found. Those dead ones who've come back to life with him. That's Jesus' big point in the parable. There's so much more in the parable that you can discern, but you could even just take that one big point and find a number of great lessons and aspects of this to learn from. Within that one big point, there's a certain facet of the story that we want to focus on today because it reveals some great truth. And the truth that we don't want to miss today is there is a great picture of God's grace here. Remember I said overdrive is this, enjoyment of grace. Well, here in the story we have a, a picture of God's grace and what it means to be a recipient of that grace. Do you know what grace is when it comes to God? We hear that word grace spoken in many different ways and maybe even in religious circles and church services or prayers. You've heard people talk about God's grace. But do you really know what God's grace is? Let me give you a, a, a few uh, definitions or insights from different angles, from just different people I've read, and just how they, they looked at this. See if you can get your, your arms around this. One person has described it this way. Love that goes upwards is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. That's not a bad description because if you go back into the Old Testament where you begin running across that concept of grace, there was an, an old Hebrew term that it, at its base meaning meant to bend down or stoop. Like if you were bending down to help a child or stooping down to help someone. That was the idea. Well, over time, that morphed into a word that became associated with the idea of, of grace. That is, a, of, of condescending favor, of someone stooping down to, to grant favor to someone who perhaps was in need. Uh, it's the idea of, uh, uh, this idea of grace is a, it's the idea of, of one who is superior um, uh, taking time to, to show kindness or favor to someone who is inferior, and maybe especially someone who doesn't in any way deserve attention or favor. That's grace. Uh, to show grace, the definition, another definition goes, is this. To show grace is to extend favor or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. To someone who's completely undeserving and really is, is hopeless in terms of being able to turn their situation around and make themselves deserving. Showing grace means extending kindness or favor to such a one. 
As it relates to God, here's a very short definition. Grace is God's undeserved favor, his unmerited love, which we might add is toward us. His undeserved favor, his unmerited love given to us. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us anyway. God is giving us the good that we don't deserve. That's grace. Someone else has said, think of it this way. Justice is getting what we deserve. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What about grace? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Or as another has put it, grace, in terms of God, grace is God giving you what you need instead of what you deserve. Think about that one. God giving you what you need instead of what you deserve. Such grace from God, of course, is exemplified in the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, we read this last week, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how his grace was manifested to us, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, content and happy at the, at the side of God the Father, has all heaven at his, uh, at, at his disposal, ha, uh, has no reason to in any way lower himself to earth, but he chooses to do so anyway, to come to earth, to live among us so that we could benefit from his grace, the, the undeserved favor which he wanted to bring to us. What did he particularly have in mind? 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. You could substitute the word, the satisfaction for our sins. Our biggest problem is that we're all sinners. That breaks our relationship with God. We didn't love God. We didn't obey God. We didn't come back to God. God came to us. Jesus Christ loved us enough that he came to live among us. He explained God to us. We know that. But the primary reason he came was to die on the cross so that the justice of God could be upheld, that God would be true to himself as a just God, and yet forgiveness could be offered. He would pay the penalty for our sins on the cross to open a way for us to have a relationship back with God, to not be judged and sent away from God for eternity, but to spend eternal life with God. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, while we were still helpless, helpless in our sins, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's grace exemplified, the grace of God manifested toward us. What's it look like, though, as we experience it? Obviously, we say, well, if we receive that grace, we have forgiveness with God, we have that, that relationship with God, but what does it actually look like, and how does, it, how, does it, how does it work itself out? What's its form in our lives? Well, that's what we get from this parable. This parable gives us a, a great picture of, of grace, and we see it in the, in, the, uh, in the response of the father to this returning lost son. Let's, let's notice and think back. First, we see this grace in the father seeking after his wayward son. Now, if you read all three parables, you're going to see this much more prominently in the other two lost and founds, where the shepherd goes after the lost sheep, and the woman turns the house upside down looking for the lost coin. But even in this parable, we see the, uh, the seeking 
nature of the Father. And that's a picture of God the Father. In, uh, here in, in uh, verse 20 in this chapter, remember it said, While he, the Son, was still a long way off, his Father saw him and ran. You can almost imagine the Father probably has a nice big house on a hill. He can see way down the road. The idea of the Father, he, he's looked, he looks down the road and he's beginning to recognize, I know that walk. I know that look. And he knows that's his Son. And the implication is clearly that he looked down that road a lot waiting for the day when that son just might come back. And as soon as he sees him, and as soon as he has just the, the merest recognition that this might be his son, he leaves the house and begins to run toward the son. There's the picture of God the Father, the seeking God who has come after us. Our, our view of the grace of God here is this. God comes to bring us back to himself, even though we don't deserve it. Jesus at another time when, when he was being challenged about spending time with one of those sinners explained himself by just saying this, the Son of Man, that's him, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why I came, Jesus said. <laughs> My whole point in being here. You guys think I'm distracted, Jesus said, that I'm being lured off the path of, of my, my role here on earth. But actually... This is exactly what I came for, Jesus said. The grace of God is manifested in that he seeks after. Last year, I uh, was at Research Stadium for an event, and I had this pair of sunglasses with me that I, you know you get a pair of sunglasses, they're just right? And I had this pair of sunglasses that were just right. I always try to make sure I didn't lose them. And that day I was wearing them, and, and you know what? I put them down in the cup holder. And I, I told myself, i got to remember that they're there so I don't leave them. But I walked off and left them anyway. It didn't help any that the cup holder was black and the sunglasses were black, and I couldn't really see it. But I left it. Well, probably three weeks later at least, maybe longer, I'm back in Research Stadium, and then I'm thinking, what are the odds that those sunglasses are still there? Very, very small, right? With all the events that go on, the people that pass through, the cleanup that happens in that stadium and all that, very, very small, but I went searching, and I found them. I reached right down into that cup holder and pulled them up. There they were. Got my sunglasses back. And what did I do? I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. What a tiny little picture of, of, of the grace of God that is. It's almost embarrassing to even relate it, but just so you can grasp it. Here is the grace of God. That we were lost and he came looking. He made the effort. And when he found us, he celebrated. Look at this next. Second, we see God's grace and the Father's loving acceptance of his son when he comes home. Remember in the parable, the, uh, the, the father recognizes in his son a repentant heart even as he's walking toward home. You can imagine, he probably sees that. He can tell by the way he's walking. He's not that proud, cocky kid he was when he left, was he? He's coming home with his head bowed down, and he knows there's a repentant heart there. In verse 20, remember, says, His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Just look at all those, those descriptions of what he did really quickly. He felt compassion for him. He sees his son. His heart goes out to him. He had sympathy for him. He has an ache inside to help him. And so he runs to him. In that culture, it was considered improper for an older man to run anywhere in public. 
but especially to run after a, a child, especially an adult child like that. But the father doesn't care. He wants his son back, and so he runs. And when he gets there, he embraces him. Literal translation from the Greek, he fell upon his neck. Does that give you the idea? Bear hug. And he, and he throws himself around him, and he buries his, his face in his, in his son's cheek, and he kisses him. This isn't, you know, polite, well, welcome home. It's nice to see you again. Have you, do you have anything to say? Have you changed your ways? Did you learn it? No, this is dad just hugging him like crazy. And what we see is this genuine, heartfelt welcome, this complete loving acceptance. And it's the picture of God's grace to us. This is the reaction of, of God when sinners come to himself with repentant uh, hearts, that he accepts them with loving arms. Now, now make sure you got this picture of God's grace because maybe you pictured when you came to God, you were coming and you were just, you know, you're, you were, you were, you're shy, you're hesitant, you're just ready to plead. And, and, and your whole picture of God during that whole time is that he's just standing there going, don't come a step closer. No, you just talk to me from way back there and we'll see if we can work this out. That is not the way it goes. God is, is the God of open arms, loving arms, the heartfelt hugs, the excitement about the, turn, the, the return, the nothing held back welcome. This is how God receives each of us back when we first come to a relationship with him, no matter how far off we've been. And it's how God receives us back even when we have that relationship established and we stumble and we come back and say, God, I'm sorry. And he doesn't say, well, yeah, I've heard sorry like 35 times in the last month. No, there's the, there's the welcome back. No reservations, no skepticism we see in the Father. It's just welcome back. And that hasn't changed. God is the same today as he was in Jesus' day. And so none of this has changed. He accepts us in that same way. That's grace. And, and are you keeping in mind that it's all undeserved? No one could make a claim for this, but God does it anyway. That's his grace. By the way, you notice in here, as far as that welcome back, that the father has a complete lack of interest in having his son return as something other than a son. And he won't even entertain any talk about the son going back to work and working his way into the family. Remember, the son has come with this prepared speech. He's genuine about it, but he's prepared his speech of genuine repentance. And his plea is, Dad, I won't even ask you to take me in as a family member. Just, could you just maybe even just give me the, the, the worst job in the business? But the father wants nothing to do with that. In fact, the thought has not even crossed his mind, evidently. He's not going to deal with his son on the basis of, of his son's works. And this is how God's grace is manifested to us, too, that he doesn't make our works the basis for any kind of renewed relationship. Rather, he bases uh, his response to us entirely on his love for us and entirely on what he chooses to freely give us. Did you catch that? He bases it on, not on anything about who we are, but about who he is. Titus chapter 3. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. On what basis? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God didn't look down upon us and say, well, you know, I see you guys have been trying a lot harder. And you've been doing so well, I just can't resist. No, God looked at us and said, you're as unworthy as you could possibly be, but that's not the basis upon which I'm going to reach out to you. That's the grace of God. His only requirement, God's only requirement is that we come home, that we come home with that repentant heart like that son did. 
and that trust that his father is a good man, and that belief, that belief also that as he comes, he, his father is worthy, a worthy leader to put himself under. And when we come with that attitude, by, by God's grace, he frees us from any servitude we may think we owe, from any slavery, from, and from any impossible task of working our way back to God, because we'll never work our way back to God. We'll never make ourselves good enough. We can't pay for our past sins enough. We can't, we can't, in this age, at this time, completely stop from being a sinner. But God frees us from that obligation. You say, okay, but my idea, though, is, right, when you come back to God, it, he receives you, but you're kind of on probation, right? When you come back into a relationship with God, you're on probation. Your rights and your privileges are, are limited, and, uh, and you kind of have to, you know, you're on a short leash, and you, you kind of have to prove yourself before God's really, really there with you wholeheartedly again. No, that's not the way it is. And it's just what we see here in the story illustrated for us. It's just the opposite. Because the father does what? He not only lovingly welcomes the son back into the family, but he fully restores him to his place in the family and even in the business. Verse 22 again. He tells the, the father tells the servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Notice all those things the father did. He brings out a robe. It's called the best robe. And what that means is it's, it's the robe they kept for special occasions, you know? Like the suit you keep in the back of your closet you need for a special occasion or that dress that's just right for some special occasion. They had those, those best robes. And the father says, bring out one of those best robes that we give to an honored guest when they come to our house or that, that the honored uh, uh, hosts or hostesses wear on a special occasion. The most important people get them. And what is this? This is a sign to the son, but to everybody else, that, that this is not just a, 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 a son who's welcomed back, but it's a son who's restored. This is a, a sign of high position and status. It's a sign that says he's back where he was before. But he also placed a, a, fing, a, a ring on his finger. Uh, and, and what is it? Well, that would have undoubtedly been a signet ring the kind of ring that would have been used to represent family and authority. You know, this is one of the business owners, so to speak. But he gives it to him, that symbol of authority, and it tells everyone there, this, this son is back immediately as a son, as a part of the household, and as a business partner. And then third, the father has sandals brought out to the son, which seems kind of funny to us. We could expect impoverished. He was probably barefoot. But there's more to it than that. You see, in, in that day, you could go into a home or a business and you could tell where people stood in terms of, of what they had or didn't have on their feet. And the one thing that was common was that if you were a slave or an indentured servant or just a hired servant or whatever you were, you didn't wear shoes. That was one of the marks that, that you're, you're not really anything but a slave or a servant. But those who, who, were, who were wearing sandals and good shoes, those were the ones who had the, the position, the presence the honor. And the father immediately says, get some shoes on this guy's feet. Because he's making a statement. And of course, there's the fatted calf, right? Well, that's the animal you set aside and you care for it specially until you're going to have the greatest celebration. And you've got a great guest of honor. And so you kill the fatted calf to have that delicious food for that special guest of honor. And the father does that. He pulls that out. So the father leaves no doubt in anyone's mind. This son is not just welcome here. He's fully restored to where he was before. 
He's not just a family member even. He's an honored family member. My sister works at Disneyland. She's worked there a lot of years. She's, she's a nurse there, actually. She works with the paramedic crews and so on in the park. And, uh, and this, uh, you know, a couple months ago, she got this, this great gift, this great gift from Disney. I don't know if you know, but Walt Disney, who, of course, created the park, actually had his own private apartment built inside the park. Walt, of course, is long gone, but they keep that apartment open for sometimes special guests. One of the things they do at Disney sometimes is to reward an employee they value or someone they want to give a nice reward to is they allow them to, to bring their family and spend a night, actually, in the apartment. So you go and you enjoy Disneyland, and then instead of leaving, you go up to Walt's place and hang out behind the scenes. And they serve you well, and so, so they took my sister and her family in, and they just you know, treated them like kings and queens and and one of the things she said is they, they came in they, at night and they gave them all Disney robes, these really plush bathrobes, had their names on them and everything. And then as the park was closing down, they came and said, come on out in your bathrobes. And they took them, and they took them in, a, in, a, in a little Disney cart and drove them all around Disneyland after dark, you know, after everything had closed down and showed them a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff and all that. They treated them like royalty. Well, this is the picture of God's grace manifested to us. I don't know if you can capture this or not because our picture of when we come back to God is so distorted. But, but the parable here tells us this is the way God looks upon us when we come back. And he invites us in and he says, come on, put on the robes. You've got the authority. You have the, pre the presence. You've got the rights. You've got the privileges. You've got the honors of one who has never done anything wrong, never gone astray, even though I know you've done wrong and you've gone astray. I know you don't deserve it, but I give you all those rights and privileges. How many of you have been thinking in your relationship with God, well, God was kind enough to squeak me in the door, so I'm not going to go to hell, but I pretty much know I have no standing with him. I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me that much. I'm pretty sure that, that he doesn't grant me honors and privileges. That's why I don't pray, maybe, you say. I don't pray very much because I don't think God's going to want to listen to my prayer request or that he would answer it. But it's not that way, Jesus tells us. There's an old story about Thomas Edison. Some people think it's apocryphal. Others say it's very true. Maybe you've heard me even tell it before of when, they were, when Edison was working and they were, they were trying to build light bulbs, you know, and make them actually work and last. And, and as they're doing these things and they're experimenting, it would sometimes take them an entire day just to make one bulb. And, and one day after they got one finished, they took it and he gave it to a lab assistant and said, store this one away. And the the, the, uh, the co-worker took it, the employee, and as he went, he dropped it, and it shattered on the floor. An entire day's work lost. It was said that they went back to work the next day and recreated the same thing again. And then when Edison got done with it, he took the light bulb, and he deliberately went over to the servant who had previously dropped it and said, here, take this away and store it. A sign of, of sure restoration, and that's the way God treats us. Come on back. Here's what it says in Romans 8. Listen, you who have come to Jesus Christ, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Aramaic word meaning Daddy. We cry out to God, Daddy, Father. Who gives you the right to call God Father? Jesus does. God the Father does. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children catch this, Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
All the good that God the Father shares with God the Son, that's something that becomes shared with us who also come to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that's the way God treats you? This is also vitally important to understand for, for a few reasons. Let's, let's note a couple of them. First of all, you want to make sure you understand all this to avoid heresy in your life. Because if you misunderstand this, you can fall into the, one of the most dangerous heresies of all, which is the heresy of, of believing that you receive forgiveness from God and acceptance of God, and your relationship with God is dependent upon how, how many good things you've done for God. Did you know that's heresy? God never takes us in on that way. It's always on the basis of God's grace. This is so dangerous because if we believe otherwise and we keep coming to God and saying, Hey, God, let me show you what I've done. Let me tell you how many times I've gone to church, how many prayers I prayed, how much I gave to the missionaries this year. God says, I, I don't even know what you're doing here. You have no place. You have no business being here. You're totally undeserving. Why are you coming to me trying to show me your works? God will not receive a person on that basis. You know, after we come into a relationship with God, sometimes we come to him and say, oh, I, I accept your grace, Father. And then we try to live on from there like, okay, God, I'm going to do this and, and maybe you'll answer my prayer if I work hard enough and do this, huh? God says, no, that's not how this works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Next verse in the book of Ephesians says, you know what, when you become a believer... God has works prepared for you to enter into. And God calls you to do those works. But our works aren't, aren't what save us, and our works, our works aren't what make us have a relationship with God. Be right and good. That comes to us only by God's grace, and we receive that strictly through faith in Jesus Christ. Second of all, we want to make sure we understand God's grace manifested to us to avoid discouragement in our lives. When we misunderstand grace, what happens? We become discouraged even after we've repented and put our faith in Jesus. But because we think that we've not done enough to be right with God. It's what I was just saying, you know. Okay, I squeaked in the door, but, but i got to do more. And then we get discouraged because we realize, you know what? My sins of the past are so bad. And, and try, you know, I really am, am trying to, to honor God with my life, and I keep stumbling and making mistakes, and I just know I'm not fully accepted and loved by God. We get not only depressed about that, we, we begin to, to walk, and turn, walk away and turn our backs on God. We stop that praying. We stop that worshiping God. We stop learning about God, going to Bible study, trusting God, serving God. We won't even take up a ministry because we're, sure, we're just sure that God really doesn't like us and will not do anything with us. That's wrong. We need to understand God's grace manifested to us means we're wholly received in. Third, it's essential to understand God's grace manifested so that we avoid hopelessness. Hopelessness. When we misunderstand God's grace, we say, I'm a failure. I'm a failure in the past. I'm a failure in the present. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a failure in the future. And so I will never go anywhere with God. I will never go anywhere with God. I learn about, when I go to church, I go to Bible study, I learn about how to walk with God. And every time I learn about that, I say, yeah, that's what I want. But then I also say, I'll never be able to do that consistently. I'll never be that person. I'm a failure. And God's unhappy with me. And I'll never grow spiritually. And he'll never take me into his ministry. And he'll never help me grow. Because he'll, he's just, I know he's constantly disappointed in me. And I'll always be left behind. 
And one reason why I bring that up, and especially the main reason why I bring that up as we close out this Accelerate series is because that's exactly how you can feel after we've done a series like this. Because do you remember back what we learned about, okay, here are some keys if you want to accelerate with God, and, and what do we say? First thing you, you have to have is a sincere commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you, if with that commitment, you know you're going to go far. And then we said, you know what, besides that, you've got to have devotion to Christ's church. Because, because it's through the church that God works. That's your family. That's your place of ministry. So make sure you're devoted. And, and then we said, you know, you have to be diligent as a disciple. Being a disciple, that's a tough road to walk. So you have to be careful in the way you walk it. We learned some specific things we needed to be careful of and, and diligent about. And then we learned also then that last week that, that you need to have a heart of a servant. You have to have a, be dedicated to serving. These are all things that are important to God. They all reflect who God is, what he's all about. So these are things we need to be about. And if we will be about these things, we know that we will be moving in the right direction with God. But here's the deal. When we talk about things like that and you sit back and you say, I can never do it. Too hard. Too many things. I've tried before. I fail. When I try to do these things, I stumble. So I don't even think I'm going to try. It's too overwhelming. I'm just not even going to try. That's to misunderstand God's grace. Because when God manifests his grace to us, he says, you know what? I already know all your failures. I know, them all. I know all your weaknesses. I know what makes you stumble the quickest. But even though I know that, I take you to myself anyway on the basis of my love and grace and you're coming back to me in faith and repentance, I just take you as you are right there. And so what God wants us to know is this. If he was here and verbalizing it instead of me, he would say this, just pursue these things with all your heart, and I'll be with you. These are things that are important to me, your commitment to Christ, your devotion to Christ's church, your diligence, your servant heart. Just pursue them with me, and as long as you're pursuing them with me, I'll take you along, and I will actually help you along in these things. Make sure you take that up. The Apostle Paul struggled with grace initially. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't get it at all. Remember him? He was, he was really, he was a very evil person disguised as a very religious person for a good part of his life. And then he actually had a real encounter with Jesus and he decided to put his faith in Jesus. And when, when he did that, he experienced grace in such an incredible way and he wrote about this later in his life and he said even later in his life he said this listen I am least I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God that's what he did earlier in his life he threw Christians in jail he had them punished beaten but by the grace of God Paul says I am what I am now and his grace toward me did not prove vain you see what he's saying? I could have done none of this on my own. He goes on to say, but I labored even more than all of them. You look at all the rest of the apostles. You see how hard I've worked? But I really got to tell you the truth. It's not me, yet not I, but the grace of God with me is what brought me to this place. It's not that somehow I figured it all out. I got all my works together, and suddenly I was good enough to go with God. It's that I just pursued the things that God called me to, and by His grace, He just kept changing my life and kept using me in the most incredible ways, and that's exactly the way God will use us. It's so important that we don't 
come at any of this with an attitude of needing to work to be accepted or, or to achieve a place with God, but to say, God, I'm just walking with you in grace. And I'm enjoying the grace that I have. Have you been enjoying grace in your life? You can. You know, when I got my ticket, <laughs> my speeding ticket, so I got it, and, and it, was a, it was a lousy one, you know. It, it had me down for, like, really breaking the law in a bad way, you know. I was way over the speed limit, not a little bit. Big, fine. And I got ready to just write the check, send it in as fast as I could. I, I hesitated a few times, and then I finally decided, okay, I'm not going to do that. Because they said you can write to the judge if you want. You can write a written explanation of, you know, what the circumstances was and see if the judge will agree with you or not. So I sat down, and I wrote out a one-page letter, and sent it off. And I, I got a letter back. It was mostly a form letter, but, but it was interesting. The first thing it said is, well, in your letter, you admitted you were guilty, so guess what? You're guilty. But, but the judge also said this, based on the circumstances, I'm reducing the, the citation you got to a lesser citation. So, so I'm not going to blame you for, for you know, as bad as, as the officer said it was, and that it probably was, according to the strict interpretation of the law. And he also reduced the fine significantly. I was happy enough with that. I would have been happier if he just totally let me off the hook. <laughs> but I was happy enough with that. But you know, there's still this like lingering thing in my life. Like, man, I got a ticket now. And so what happens if I get a second one now? You know, that's going to be even worse, right? And the insurance is, I got, this thing is kind of lingering over my head. It's just a little deal, right? But it's still, there's a little thing kind of lingering over my head. But do you understand that with God, you don't have anything lingering over your head at all? The scripture says, in fact, that, that as far as God is concerned, even that record, he takes the record of your past sins. It says in the Old Testament, and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. It says he takes them and he buries them on the bottom of the ocean where no one can go. That's the totality of the grace you have with God. So, Will you live in it and enjoy it and struggle? No. Will you live in it and enjoy it and go forward with God? Yeah, if you choose that. But you must choose to live with the enjoyment of that grace. For some of you today, maybe for the first time ever, you're saying, I never understood it this way. I never thought that God accepted me in this way. Well, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say today, now I know differently. And now I'm going to go about this all differently than I've been going about it. I'm going to come out of my darkness and I'm going to come out of my despair and I'm going to come out of my laziness and I'm going to walk with this God. Let's stand and give Him thanks as we make that choice today. Heavenly Father, how amazing that Your grace is amazing. Thank You for loving us this way. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes. We need this. Some of us have needed it for the first time. Some of us have needed it as refreshers. Lord, as we go into this, we'll just acknowledge again, we know we're undeserving. But we will not deny the fact that you love us even though we're undeserving. As hard as that is for us to grasp, we're going to take you at your word because, because to deny it would be to, to call you a liar. And we, we choose not to do that any longer. Choose, Father, then to step up, to be praising you and honoring you and living with a whole new and different attitude. Lord, make us instruments of your grace to others that they could find this too, I pray.
In the name of Jesus, amen.